So we're going to start walking through. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Um, it's obviously, this still ties to worldview because to develop a biblical worldview, part of that means not only are you informed by what Scripture says, but really it means you got to understand your Bible. And we spent a lot of time walking through the theology of Scripture, how to read your Bible and all this. But what we didn't walk through and what we're going to take some time, I think this will be easy, especially in summer as summer in and out. Uh, this will be a little easier to follow is we're just, we're just going to walk through the story of Scripture. Uh, the reality is the overwhelming majority of Scripture is narrative. Because in truth, you and I learn and, and remember story far easier than anything else. And uh, the, the other side of that is Scripture then is not just a book of moral proverbs, do's and don'ts, but it's history. It's history, not just history, but it's prophecy. And realize history and prophecy deal with real tangible life and, and actuality. So we're going to walk through the story of Scripture, and it'll be fun to do it this way. Uh, at, at Central, as college pastor, we would do an event once a semester we called the Intensive. And the Intensive is where we would take a broad topic like the Old Testament, and we would basically do a six-hour marathon Bible study with bathroom breaks sprinkled in. So uh, we're not doing that tonight. Don't worry. You're not secretly going to be here till midnight. But uh, if we were to do it that way, that would be what that would mean. Um, but we're going to dive in, walk through the Old Testament, uh, start with the Old Testament and, and move through. So we'll see how far we, we get tonight. I do hope you have either a physical or digital Bible. Be ready to turn. Uh, why is the Old Testament important? Uh, we saw 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 said, all scripture is breathed by God. It doesn't say the New Testament is breathed out by God. It doesn't say the New Testament epistles, which are easier to understand, do versus don't, are breathed out by God. It says all Scripture. Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So if we're committed to the Word, then we should be committed to the Old Testament because it's part of the Word. Not only that, but the New Testament is built on the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill it. He didn't come to wipe away the Old Testament, but to fulfill what the Old Testament points to. We find in places like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, and he, he mentions three, uh, three more, probably more obscure stories from the Old Testament in terms of they're not the stories vacation Bible schools built around. Uh, and he says the Old Testament, part of the purpose of the Old Testament, it's not, is, is, to, is to teach you and I who God is and how we interact with God and to set uh, said as uh, both encouragement to do right and warnings against wrong. Not only that, but we know from Jesus and Luke, he, he's on the road to Emmaus and he's with the two disciples and it says that he, he proceeds to walk through the Old Testament and, and points how the, old, the whole Old Testament points to the Messiah. Reality is the Old Testament read correctly should, read, should lead the person who reads it to Jesus Christ. Now here's the great danger. All of the nation of Israel had the Old Testament when Jesus showed up in the flesh. And the overwhelming majority of Israel missed him. Which means intellectual knowledge of Scripture can give you the right answers, but can cause you to miss the answer. So, why is it important in the Old Testament? If we're committed to the Word, we're committed to the Old Testament. The New Testament's built on the Old Testament. It's an example to us. We see it all points to Christ. Now, here's, here's the reality, though. For many, if you say, where do you, where have you spent the majority of your time reading your Bible? For a lot, it's in the New Testament. And that's not a good or bad thing. But sometimes it, it is a bad thing if, if, if we don't get in the Old Testament because it's just, it's tough. And there's a lot of reasons the Old Testament can be tough. One, you and I, we, we are far removed from the culture of that day. So a lot of things that would have just been no-brainers to even the disciples, they're not no-brainers to us. Why, why is that? What is that festival? Why does that matter? Why is that important? Um, why, why do they do that weird thing? Why, why do they have to go do that? We're far removed from the geography of the day. You get into some of the some of the the books of the Old Testament will say, and this place is, is still there today and it's called such and such. Well, the people who originally read that would have gone, oh yeah, right down the street. A lot like when y'all are filling, filling me in on places, oh yeah, the Pflugers own that land, the White Vices own that land, right? You know why, because you're not far removed if you're a long time in Pflugerville from those days. We're far removed from the geography. Most of us have never seen the Holy Land. 
And even if you see the Holy Land, a lot of stuff looks different than how it did in Jesus' day in certain parts. Uh, Part of what's tough about the Old Testament is unlike a book that you and I would write today if we were writing a novel, the whole Old Testament is not in chronological order. Parts of it are in chronological order, and then others aren't. So ironically, even though Malachi is the actual chronological last book written of the Old Testament, Isaiah is not the first prophet The prophets are not all in some kind of chronological order. So it can be tough to, you know, where does this prophet fit in? How does this go? How does this work? Uh, You've got 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, much of which overlap over some of the same material. Part of it is it's hard because we don't understand all the different genre of scripture, reading prophecy or poetry, uh, working through Job. Part of it's tough because it raises hard questions. There are hard questions in the Old Testament. There's harsh realities in the Old Testament. They're there in the New, but, but, but maybe it's a little easier seen in the Old Testament. Things like the genocide claim. Does God condone genocide? He asked healed Israel to go in and wipe everybody out. Miracles. Wait a minute. You're telling me that Moses stuck a stick in the water and a massive body of water split in half and was high as walls on both sides? There's hard questions. So it's important we understand it. And so we're going to have fun with this. Um, Let me just remind you some basic stuff. Remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a few portions in Aramaic. We we looked at some of this. This is reminders from our Bibleology series. Uh, Written in Hebrew, some portions in Aramaic. Uh, If you pick up a Hebrew Bible, I didn't bring my Hebrew Bible over here today, but if you pick it up, you will notice it's in a slightly different, same books, slightly different order. In a Hebrew Bible, the first five books, the Torah, are all the same, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The next section would be the prophets, divided into the former prophets and the latter prophets. The way it would be, though, is the former prophets is Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, except First and Second Samuel are one book and First and Second Kings are one book. The latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then what they would call the book of the 12, that would be your 12 minor prophets. Then you'd have the writings, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, uh, Ezra, and Chronicles. You say, well, why is Daniel in the writings and not the prophets? Well, because Daniel never claims to be a prophet, so therefore they didn't put him in that section of the writings. So just, that's just a heads up. If you ever pick up a Hebrew Bible and you go, wait a second, what's wrong with my Bible? There's nothing wrong with your Bible. We just have the books ordered slightly differently in, in categories. Uh, it doesn't make it more right or less right or wrong. And I'll remind you, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church add those apocryphal books in as well to their Old Testament. Uh, we do not. Those, those were never viewed even by the Jews as Scripture. Uh, our, our Old Testament Bible, our Old Testament's divided into three primary sections, or four, sorry, four sections. The law, the Torah, the historical books, Joshua through, uh, through Esther, the wisdom poetry books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then the prophets, divided into the major prophets and the minor prophets, major and minor based on the scope and size of the prophecy. So as we walk through the Old Testament, we're going to walk through narrative, we're going to walk through law, we're going to walk through wisdom, we're going to walk through poetry, we're going to walk through prophecy, we're going to walk through what's called apocalyptic literature, and I hope you're ready, your seatbelts are fastened, it shouldn't be too turbulent, but uh, we are going to jump in. So if you've got your Bibles, get ready, because we're going to go real hard to get there to the very first page, Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1.1. Genesis is the first book. Literally means the beginning. It tells the origin of the world, who God is, his interaction with the world, why the world exists. And it's the first of the five books that we call the Pentateuch, the law, or the Torah, uh, that you'll hear those terms used at times. Now, those first five books, who wrote them? Moses. Moses is the answer that has been accepted since they were written. Historically, all Jewish and Christian scholars hold this position and always have, by the way. Moses wrote it. We see internal evidence. Exodus 24, Numbers 33, Deuteronomy 1 seem to indicate from within Moses wrote. We know that Jesus and the apostles held this position, that Moses wrote these books. So who wrote it? Moses. Now let me give you just as a side, in case you interact with this. The primary counter 
to Moses being the author is what's called the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis. Or sometimes you may hear it called the J-E-D-P theory. J-E-D-P. Okay, you may, used to, I would have said, man, like, no one in here needs to know this. This is just the real technical stuff they teach you in seminary. However, this is the kind of nonsense that's now been packaged in everyday language and and thrown through uh, Instagram theologians, and your kid or grandkid may have heard this. So that's why I'm bringing it up. The theory basically goes like this, that when you look at the Hebrew language, it would say there are four different writers who wrote different portions of what we know as the first five books of Scripture at different times. So one of those writers, the J writer, the Yahwehist, he wrote the portions where God's name is Yahweh. The E writer, who used the term Elohim for God, he wrote a hundred years later. The D writer, who we would call the Deuteronomist, wrote most of the book of Deuteronomy. He was a little over a hundred years after that. And then finally, the P, the priestly code, uh, was written last, all of which, by the way, would be over a thousand years after the fact, far removed. Uh, This theory was never heard of until the mid-1800s. It was a theory that German scholars, uh, very much influenced by the naturalism of their day, refusing to accept the supernatural realities that are present in those books, they came up with to try to explain how we got the first five books of Scripture. It's contradicted by by both Jewish and Christian church uh, tradition. It's contradicted by the actual text itself. It's contradicted by the rest of the Old Testament. It's contradicted by the New Testament. It's contradicted by the actual unity of theme and story that shows one author throughout all five books. It's contradicted by the fact that the author writes as an eyewitness, not a historian thousands of years later. It's contradicted by the familiar familiarity of Egyptian culture and geography things, even like the amount that a the amount of money that Joseph was sold into slavery for is extremely precise. And if someone had written when, when the documentary hypothesis says it would have been written, there's no way they would have known that the, the, the figure would have been skewed. It's contradicted by the growing amount of archaeological evidence that further affirms what was written there. So again, I bring it up because if you really read some of it, or or specifically if some younger people who are struggling with some doubts influenced by the place our culture is at today, read some of that. If you're not careful, it can sound really convincing because it appeals to a very natural, a naturalistic way of living, which is the predominant worldview our young people have been raised on for the last 60 years. It's just reality. So that's why I mention it to you. If you ever hear something, documentary hypothesis or J-E-P, uh, J-E-D-P, just know that's the false theory out there for how, how, uh, how Scripture was written. And prior to the mid-1800s, no one in the world thought about it. And by the way, don't want to forget, it's a hypothesis, not a fact. Moses wrote the first five books. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then you stay there, but let me add to it what Colossians chapter 1 says. When it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him uh, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will have first place in everything." So here's this picture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in one single sentence, we looked at this several weeks ago, we find that right off the bat, there is a being, God. God exists, subjective reality. This being, God, is distinct from all of creation. Creation is not God. Creation is not a part of God. Creation is a work of God. We know that creation, when we say creation there, based on Colossians, we're not just referring to the physical universe, but it's the physical universe and it's the spiritual universe. The angels, and now subsequently because of their fall, the demons, the place where heaven and now hell exist. 
We know that in this act of creation, the God who created is not just a singular being with singular person. He is a singular being who is three distinct, co-equal, unique persons. You see God, you see the Spirit. We know from Colossians, it's Jesus who's actually bringing about the work of creation, who's ironically the Word of God is acting as the Word of God creating. And we walk through Genesis 1, shows us each day of creation. And here's the reality. As you come to Genesis, Genesis breaks down as a book into two main sections, Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 through 50. Those are the two main sections of the book of Genesis, if you're, if you're trying to outline it. Genesis 1 through 11 established basically the foundational history of, of all of humankind and the world on which we live. And in Genesis 1 through 11, we find the basis for nearly every major doctrine and ethical issue that is, that is found in Scripture and in reality. We see a distinct, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, triune God. And the Lord said, let, then the Lord said, singular, let us, plural, make man in our image. And so God made male and female. He made them in his image. We see presence of triune God. And in this way, it refutes atheism. There is no God. Well, obviously, Scripture says there's a God. It, it refutes pantheism. All is God. No, all is not God. God is God, and all else is distinct, made by God. Polytheism. Many gods exist. No, one God exists. Materialism. Matter has always existed. No, matter had a beginning. Humanism. Man is the measure. Well, man can't be the measure if we were created. Naturalism. Nature is ultimate. Well, nature can't be ultimate because nature is not all there ever was. And nor is it all that there is. We find that this creation, the word uh, God created is Hebrew word bara. It's a word that is never used in the Old Testament with a human being as its subject. Let me put it this way. A human being never creates. A human being cannot create. A human being cannot bara. The only person who is the subject of this action of creation is God. He alone is the one who creates. We see creation as one of absolute beginning. God is not, it doesn't say in the beginning, God took some materials and rearranged them and formed it. It says in the beginning, God created. The, the implication is there was nothing and then there was something. An absolute beginning. It's, it's inferred what we would call the, the idea of creation ex nihilo, that God created everything out of nothing. All that was there before the, the, the spiritual and physical realm, all that was there is God. And out of nothing, He creates. We see the existence of both the physical, the natural, and the spiritual. We see all throughout chapter 1, look, uh, look and see, in the, uh, let there be light. God saw the light was good. God said, let there be beasts, uh, uh, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, 124. And, and then in 25 says, he saw everything and saw that it was good. He makes man and woman in his image. And then he sees, verse 31, all that he had made and behold, it was very good. We find the fact that physical creation is not something evil, but is actually something good. It's good. Because for much of church history, people have struggled with this idea that, well, it's all about my spiritual life. My physical life has no bearing. Yeah, absolutely. God cares just as much about the soul as the body. It's why for all eternity, when we separate from our body at death, we don't stay that way for all eternity. When Jesus comes back, he resurrects our body and reunites us, and we're like that for all eternity. Physical creation is, is good, is valuable, is precious in the eyes of God. We see that humankind is made in the very image of God. Humankind is not just another creature, but is made unique and distinct, different, with the ability to relate to God on a different level, a different place. And understand when it says that, that human beings were made in the image of God alone, that doesn't just include the physical universe, it's the spiritual universe. The angels are not made in the image of God, which is why when angels fell, there is no shot at redemption for them. One strike, they're out. 
That's why it says in 1 Peter that the salvation you and I have right now in Christ, the angels long to just get a quick peek through the door at because of the standing you and I have with God as image bearers. And you say, well, what, what, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Is it, is it something emotional? Is it something, there's been a lot of different ways. God doesn't have a physical body in his basic essence. Does, does that mean we have, the, so it's on our f- physical body. A lot of different things have been tried to theorize. And if you go too far down that rabbit hole of any one thing, you'll find places where it just doesn't fit or where, here's the reality. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means to be human is to be in the image of God. To be human is to be in the image of God, period. It means a bird is not in the image of God. It means even though animals certainly can feel certain kinds of emotions, certainly some animals seem very capable of of communicating, not even just within their species, but to other species. If you got a dog in this room, the dog knows how to tell you if it needs to go outside or wants food. It's quite impressive what many animals are capable of, but there is no animal made in the image of God because no animal as a species is human. We find that ethics, right and wrong, good and bad, is based on the character of God. We find what's called the cultural mandate. God God creates Adam and Eve, and and he tells them in verse 28, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the, the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you and goes on this idea of cultural mandate as God created the whole world he he set Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them a mandate to go and we call it the cultural mandate because he said you are the pinnacle of all creation rule this creation like I intend for you to rule and in doing that you create culture God's intention from the very beginning was that mankind, humankind, reproduce, that more and more come and that they fill out the world that God and his love created to be mutually enjoyed and, and in a relationship with him. It's why we find when you get to chapter two that God specifically charges the man uh, with working the fields and the ground and these things. And then God looks at this charge he's given the man and he says, the man's alone, this is not good. Remember, God is not a a one-person God, he's a three-person God, he's a triune God, which means for all eternity he has had perfect fellowship. Yet here he created man first and man has no other like being to fellowship with. In fact, every, every animal comes by None is found to be a suitable helper, so God puts the man to sleep in chapter 2, and he creates woman. He creates woman. And it brings them together, and of course, there's the statement, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there, right there in chapter 2, before sins ever entered the picture, it says, Two, for this reason, if man shall leave his father and mother and shall become one flesh, we find the very first institution of all society in creation, the family. In the very first marriage, we see in this reality that God has made male and female completely and totally equal in value, equal in worth, equal in image, yet even from the very beginning of creation gave them complementary roles that they were to play in the family. God didn't tell Adam to, to help and Eve to till the ground. He said, Adam, till the ground, and then Eve, you become the suitable Helper, both of which in God's eyes are incredibly valuable, both of which are needed, both of which are necessary, one of which is not better than the other. We see male and female are not just, Adam didn't just go, well, I'm going to identify as the male. They are biologically male and female by the way their physical bodies look and work and move and breathe, and that's what determines whether they are male or female. We also see, then moving into chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty. We see the fall. We see the serpent enter the picture. Did God say you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? God didn't say that. He said you can't eat from one tree. Well, did God really say, we see from the very beginning, how is Satan attacking? Not with, hey, you should eat from that tree. Hey, let me take what God said and twist it. Let me take something that's partially true, but because it's only partially true, it's 100% a lie. And let me present it to you. And let me find a way to appeal. We find Eve falls for the lie. But it also says as she eats the fruit, so Adam stood by and watched. And the charge in which Adam had to lead his home, he failed miserably. 
because he stood by and allowed a lie to rule. We see this fall has consequences. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, the cool of the day, and his, he and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the garden. The Lord God called to man and said, where are you? And, man, and Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. So he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? And then, of course, we see the blame game start. Oh, Lord, that woman you gave me, it's actually your fault if you had given me a better version. So now it's God's fault. Sin, no, false. It's not God's fault. It's your fault, you dummy. And the owner says, well, the serpent deceived me. Wait a minute. You didn't listen to my word. And you see God said to the serpent, he gives curses to the serpent. We, he, gives, um, he makes work. Now man's relationship with work is broken. Woman's relationship with childbearing is broken. And it's interesting to me, and, and I, I, I wouldn't have you take this too far, but it is interesting. Sin enters the picture, brings death, and what we call breaking. It, it twists, it distorts, it breaks things out of alignment. And it is interesting to me, generally speaking, emphasis on generally speaking, when you look at generally speaking what men struggle with versus women struggle with, you find a lot of men who struggle with their value and identity in terms of what they do. And you find a lot of women who struggle with value and identity in terms of who they're connected to. Could it be because those tie back to the original charges God gave men and women at the very beginning and sin breaks those? Again, generally speaking, please hear me. A guy can struggle with who he's tethered to. A girl can struggle with, with work. It's just interesting. And it didn't hit me until you started reading stuff out of the Soviet Union that alcoholism and suicide after the Soviet Union fell were rampant among men. Because as bad as communism was, under communism they had a job. And their value was tied to work. It's interesting. Sin breaks everything. But here we also see this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. He shall crush you on the head. You shall bruise him on the hill. Right there, Genesis 3, 15. That is the first prophecy that God is going to send a Messiah. That the Messiah will not be the seed of man, will be the seed of woman, virgin birth. And that the seed of the woman, this Messiah, Satan will nip at his heel, but this Messiah will crush Satan and everything Satan stands for. It's the first proclamation that, that redemption is coming, help is coming. We see the fall where sin comes from. We see a Savior promised to set right. All of these doctrines find their origin in Genesis 1 through 11. Which is why there is such a danger today. Has been, it's not new. But from those who would say Genesis 1 through 11 is, is an analogy, a metaphor, mythology, not literal. Because if it's not literal, if Adam and Eve aren't literal people, then what does that do to our understanding of the worth and value of humans in the image of God? If Satan's metaphorical, what does that do? Is sin just a metaphor? If I just expose my eyes, if I take the right pill and get out of the matrix, am I somehow going to no longer come to death? Hey, you believe that. When your time comes, you'll discover you believed a lie. But these things are out there. It's why when it comes to, and I'll just be there, we see in Scripture a, 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 what we call creationism. The language speaks to it. I'm going to just be clear on this. I'll, I'll own where I fall. But here, the language, the Hebrew of Genesis 1 and 2 speak to a literal six 24-hour day creation. That's what the Hebrew speaks to. There are other theories out there. And I fully acknowledge, we could all get before the Lord one day and the Lord could say, yeah, it's all literal there, but there's also a little bit of, of figurative. But at the end of the day, all you and I are left with as a believer is what does the actual text say? And we should always side with what the text says in honesty over whatever culture or today's science says. Now, am I willing to agree to disagree with some who would say, well, I think it, I think it could be an older earth. I think there could be gaps in between the days. There's some areas where I'm happy to agree to disagree. The clear dividing line, though, that I will not agree to disagree is when you cross the line into a kind of theistic evolution that says man and woman got evolved 
from other creatures. False. If man and woman are not created uniquely and distinctly in the image of God, then it completely undermines the doctrine of humanity. It completely undermines the doctrine of the incarnation. And it completely alters and changes what Jesus did on the cross. So, some areas where I'm happy to have discussion, happy to agree to disagree. For sure, there's some areas where there's lines we can't cross. Absolutely. Like a literal Adam and Eve. Centers the picture in chapter four and we come in chapter three and chapter four. What do we see? We see we're not even one generation into human beings. I guess maybe we'll call it two. You got mom and dad and you got brothers. We're not even into the second generation of human beings and premeditated cold-blooded murder is already happening in the world. That's sin. We see an ungodly line through Cain. We see that God provides Seth. We get into chapter five, genealogies, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move quicker here. Genealogies, there's a lot of interesting things in there. Enoch walked with God and then was no more. That's the language. Walked with God and then was not. Of course, he's obviously, if you hold to a certain view of the end times, he's going to come back and be one of the witnesses that uh, gets killed and then comes back to life and spits out fire and consumes everybody along with Elijah, since they're the only two men in history who have not ever experienced death. Only two. Because even Jesus experienced death. Uh, Methuselah, the man who lived the longest at all time, he dies the year of the flood. Now, there's some debate on this, but it, there, there are some who think that when you study his name, his name actually means um, man of the weapon, or when he dies, judgment shall come. When he dies, it shall be sent, as almost as if he is a a prophetic tool because when he dies, it was sent. And it was sent in the days of Noah. We see Genesis 6 through 9, the flood. We see in the flood God's judgment on the wickedness of humanity. We see God's mercy, the fact that he saves the human race by means of an ark, by means of deliverance through a man. Some foreshadowing there. We see a global flood which, by the way, on a scientific level, solves a lot of problems with what Scripture says, but no one wants to acknowledge it. The language in the passage does not allow for a local flood. It's a global flood. That word ark, by the way, is the same word used for Moses' basket placed in the river. We find the fallout of the flood, that the flood happens 40 days and 40 nights. It rains. Everybody dies, which is always fascinating to me, right? I mean, we, we, have, a, you know, we have a little Little Tykes. Jesse loves to play with this little Little Tykes Noah's Ark thing, right? We, Noah's Ark wallpaper, Noah's Ark, cute little precious moments things. When you realize that literally Noah and his family were on the Ark, one, around a bunch of smelly, nasty animals, two, everybody in the world dying around them. It's a very gross, violent, harsh story, but man, we like to make it really cute. And that's not a bad thing. It just is goofy to me that... So if your picture in your mind of Noah's Ark is what you see in the kid's wing, uh, keep it there for the kids, but no, that's not what it looked like, sounded like, felt like. Flood fallout. Here's what we find again, a common ancestor for all humans. Jonah has three sons, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Uh, from Shem, we see the people that would occupy the area around the Euphrates River, the Arabian Peninsula, people like the Persians, Assyrians, Chaldeans, that would be the Babylonians, the Jews, the Semitic people, Shem. Japheth, uh, these are people that we would find um, in the area around the Black and Caspian Sea, Asia Minor, the Greek islands, Cyprus, Crete, Rhodes, some, some as far in Asia as the Tanis River, uh, Ham. These would be people in northern and eastern Africa and down, down into those areas. And just while we're on there, they understand, because I see this come back as well, because Ham's, the people who descended from Ham were known to go down into Africa. And because Ham is the son of Noah that was cursed, there were real churches under the days of Chattel slavery who taught a doctrine called the curse of Ham, that the reason it is biblically justifiable to enslave people of black and brown skin color is because they are under a curse. That was really taught in some of our churches. Now, it has not been taught in many of our churches for a long time. When I say our churches, I mean Southern Baptist churches. But as in, in light of a lot of the... Uh, racial reconciliation and racism stuff in the last several years, that is something that gets spit back out. So I just, I'm telling you that for your information of where that comes from. There were real churches, even Southern Baptist churches in the 1800s that taught that. There were also churches that refuted it, but that's one of the big things that, that gets brought up still to this day. Uh, we see the Noahic covenant that God will never again wipe out all of the earth. We see in Genesis chapter 9, 
Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Uh, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for he is made in the image of God. For in the image of God, he made man. Here you see God institute. God institutes capital punishment for cold-blooded premeditated murder. That's what the word means. If any man takes his, that's the idea there. It's not an accidental death. It's not, it's premeditated cold-blooded murder. God institutes capital punishment in that way. As we move through it, we, we find, uh, we come to um, Babel. In chapter 11, and the dispersion of the nations, the creation of languages. And if we pause there, if we were doing this chronologically, we'd actually pause Genesis and we'd jump over to the book of Job. Because this is most likely when the book of Job occurs, is sometime in between the events of Genesis 11 and the events of Genesis 12, where we see Abraham step into the scene. We're not going to do that tonight. We're going to look at Job in a a later week. But I want you to just make that note that where does Job fall in this story of Scripture? Well, it would fall in right here in this period. The reasons we think that are are primarily linguistic uh, because um, the language in Job is so unique and so much older than the rest. We know that it comes from a period... uh, very old and, and very ancient. So that's the first half of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12 through 50. Okay, Genesis 12 through 50, you can break up and essentially, it's the second section, you can break it up into four subsections, if you will, surrounding four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay, Genesis 12, we, we are introduced to Abraham, and, and this is how Genesis 12 starts. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and you go on from there. Then, then in Genesis chapter 15, Abram said, verse 2, Lord God, what, what will you give me since I am childless? And since you have given no offspring to me, one born in, my, born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir, but one who comes forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took out, took God took Abraham outside, or Abram at that time. Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. Which, by the way, just think about that. Abraham, or Abraham would have been looking up at the starry night sky with zero light pollution. That is a lot of stars. So hence God's question. Count the stars, if you can. And he said, and God said to Abram, so shall be your descendants. And here's a key verse. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord and God reckoned it, counted it towards Abram as righteousness. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And so God said, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell about him. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun set, and it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the land of Egypt as far as the great river from Euphrates. And he goes on to describe the rest of the land. These two passages are critical in the story of Scripture because this is God's covenant. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. This is God's covenant with Abram, that Abram will have a biological son, a miraculously conceived biological son. 
that will not come until he's 100 and Sarah 90. Just process the logistics of that. Miraculous. This covenant, look at what's in this covenant. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make a great nation. I'll make your name great. We are still speaking the name of Abraham worldwide today. And there are three major religions in the world that look to him as the father of the religion. Obviously, two of them we don't agree with. They're false. But I mean, I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. And still to this day, thousands of years later, we still talk about Abraham. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He tells Abraham essentially a couple basic things. I'm going to give you a land for your people. I'm going to make your people great. I'm going to bless you. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and the entire world will be blessed through you. Because what God is obviously foreshadowing is, Abram, through the people that I am going to bring through you, I'm going to send the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. We see then that covenant ratified there in chapter 15. And by the way, notice, God does not make Abram walk in between for the covenant. That's, that's a covenant ceremony, taking the animals, cutting them in half, and that flaming torch, that's the Lord's presence walking in between. And when you entered into a covenant, when you walked in between, you did so to say that if I break the vow of this covenant, what was done to these animals be done to me. But notice, it's not God and Abraham that walk through, it's just God. This covenant with Abram has nothing to do with Abram. It has nothing to do with who he is, his greatness, this or that. It has to do with who God is. And God going through that says, I will never break my word. Which is why personally I do hold that there is still something less for God to do with the geopolitical nation of Israel before he returns because God does not break his covenants. That's why you and I have hope that the blood of Christ is good because it's the new covenant in his blood. But also notice this. Abraham believed in the Lord. God gave him a word and Abraham said, I believe it. I rest the full weight of my being on what is unseen, but you say is true. And God credit to him as righteousness. Here's why that's key. That is the basis of Paul's argument, right? You have all the law. We'll look at this in the weeks to come. All the law that gives that sign, all the sacrifices, all of this. And Paul in Romans is chapter three says, salvation comes by grace through faith. And then in chapter four, he goes, well, 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 Paul, what about, it wasn't always this way. What about, and Paul says, no, no, no. It was always this way because look at Abram. What did God count as righteousness to Abram? His faith, not his works, not his quality, not his good. The fact that he believed what God said was completely and totally true, which is why it has always been a salvation by grace through faith from the beginning to the end. Just prior to Christ, people were looking forward to Christ. Post-Christ, we now look back at Christ. Side little note, I think it's a fascinating little statement. He tells Abram in that chapter 15, we read it. Basically, he tells them all about how the people are going to go to Egypt and suffer there, and he makes this statement. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It's this interesting little statement that basically implies this. The time of the Amorites, who were wicked people, to in the patience and compassion of God have an opportunity to turn and repent from their ways wasn't done. And God gave them another 400 years to repent and they never did, which is why when you come to God telling the Israelites as you go in, you need to take these people out as an act of my judgment and justice. You see, wow, God didn't just send people in with who just had no clue. God, God had been patient for hundreds of years. Put that in context to you. That's God being patient with, with white people in America from the first time someone stepped foot till now. Just to try to put that, not the first time someone stepped foot, but from the early colonial days. That's how long that is. That's how much time 400 years is. From there, you get Isaac, the son of promise. Obviously, there's the incredible reality of, of, of Abram's asked to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. Sometime I have to bring it in here and show you. I found this really cool video. Mount Moriah, when you read Mount Moriah in Genesis, understand that is the location of the temple 
for the rest of the Old Testament. Mount Moriah is the temple mount. It's the threshing floor that David purchases that the temple is built on. So when, when, when Abram takes Isaac, Abraham at this point, his name's changed, Abraham takes Isaac up to sacrifice on Mount Moriah, that's the temple mount. That's the same place where the high priest would go in every year in the temple and make the atonement for the nation's sin. It's the same place. It's the foreshadowing. And, what, and what's here? A father is placing his son to be sacrificed for atonement of sin, yet God says, I will provide another way. Yet there would come another father who would take his son and put him on an altar far less glorious and sacrifice for everybody's sin just outside Mount Moriah. Isaac comes, Jacob comes. Time doesn't permit to get in all that. You see Jacob and Esau, Jacob's uh, the chosen line, even though he's the younger son. All sorts of deception. We see all the reality of Jacob and uh, working seven years for Rachel, then getting Leah, not realizing it's Leah, working another seven years for Rachel, having a couple of wives. You got his 12 sons. Joseph, Joseph is sold out, goes down to Egypt. Uh, and ultimately, here's, here's where we'll wrap this for tonight. We just made it through Genesis. I knew we wouldn't make it through the whole tour. I was kidding myself. What was I thinking? Um, when you come to, to Joseph, Joseph, obviously we know the story, sold into slavery, righteous man, wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, in prison, uh, favor in prison, forgotten. And you, uh, I've got my two-minute mark. I hear her. Um, Finally, he's brought into a position. You see uh, the brothers come down. And it's interesting who part of what is his test, right? You're going to leave me Benjamin because he knows that's the other beloved son from Rachel. Obviously, they think Joseph's dead. Who is it who steps up to say, no, I will take me in his place? It's Judah. Judah steps up. Judah steps up as a substitute for Benjamin, and in stepping up as a substitute brings reconciliation. Of course, the brothers reunite. There's reconciliation. Joseph said what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph sees the trial as a whole different means. God used what was wicked, what was wrong, what he doesn't approve of, but he used it as only as he can to prep me, to train me, to prepare me, to place me as the second most powerful man in the world at that time because Egypt would have been the global power, to be able to interpret dreams, to prepare, to now bring salvation. And so the brothers go back. They bring everybody down. And you see in Genesis chapter 49... J Jacob's prophecy over his, his sons he says to Judah, chapter 49, verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And there is the prophecy that specifies that through the tribe and line of Judah will come the permanent ruler of God's people. And so Genesis comes to a close now with, with the people who have come. Abraham was promised a nation. It was to be through an actual son between he and Sarah, a miraculous son. That son is Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have Jacob and Esau and Jacob. And by the way, every one of these, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God has individual moments with, with Isaac and Jacob to reaffirm the covenant I made with your father, Isaac, the covenant I made with your father and your grandfather, Jacob, is still binding for me to you. Which is why you hear the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you get down to the end. You've got the 12 sons of Jacob. You've got Joseph put down in Egypt. God uses miraculous deliverance to now bring that people from Abraham, who at this point will find out according to um, Exodus, when we turn the page here in two weeks, God is going to take them down. There's about 70 people at this point. This great nation that's going to come from Abraham, we're about 70 people. And God's going to bring these 70 people down into the land of Egypt, initially under favorable circumstances when we leave the book of Genesis. And then God's going to keep his work going. And so we'll just pause right there. Because that's where we end Genesis. That's where we come. That's where we come to the end. Joseph passes. He makes them promise before he does. They'll take his bones back to the land of Egypt. Um, 
when they when the people leave and it says so Joseph died at the age of 110 he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt and thus ends Genesis the beginning and sets up the rest of the story where we'll go in the book of Exodus so um all kidding aside, even when I teach this over a course of six hours, I do take an hour in Genesis. Because if you don't understand Genesis, you don't understand the bedrock and the foundation for everything. That covenant God made with Abraham, you and I experience the goodness of that covenant today in Christ. That promise God, God gave in Genesis 3.15, you and I experience that reality today. The reason death doesn't end you and I forever is because the seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent. And his blood is what saves you and I today and anyone else who will rest their faith completely in who he is, the way it's always been, by grace through faith. So we'll finish there. Let me, let me just real quick remind you, we will be here next week, but I will not be here next week. I will be just wrapped up out in Anaheim with the Southern Baptist Convention. So Chris Gary is going to be teaching next week. And let me please make a challenge. If you can't make it next week, even if I were here, great, then be wherever you're going to be. But don't not be here because pastor's not here. Because God is bigger than pastor. And we've got other good men on staff that God is speaking and working through. And I'm really excited for what God's laid on Chris's heart to share with you guys next week. So Chris will be here. Uh, he's, he's not going to do Exodus. He's got something different. And we'll pick up here in two weeks. I would covet your prayers. Uh, as I go out to Anaheim, this is a big convention with a, a variety of things going on and has potential to be um, pretty strenuous. And so just would ask your prayers for health, for safety, uh, and just for humility and true uh, wisdom from the Lord as we meet for convention next week. So let me pray for us and, and we'll be done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you really did create everything and you really did create us as the pinnacle of your creation. And God, you desire a holy and loving relationship with us. And from Day one, that has been the beat of your heart, and you have carried yourself in complete and total um, conformity to that. And when we messed it up, you didn't waste a second hesitation to say, I've got a plan, and here's what's going to happen. So, Lord, may we be people. Those of us in this room, we know you by grace through faith, Holy Spirit, you live inside of us. There is no excuse, Lord. May we be people who, like Abraham, Believe your word and walk out in light of that obedience. May we be people like Joseph who allow you to train us, to mold us, to shape us, to stand for you regardless of the consequences and through whom you glorify your name. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.